in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer over at HowStuffWorks and I love all things tech. And today we're going to talk about a pretty technical subject. And uh, just to get this out of the way, I am getting over a cold and it's pollen season here in Atlanta already. So I might sound a little extra grungy today. Uh, just, just blame that on, on my health and Nirvana. But recently, a listener asked me to give an update on the switchover to IPv6, which I thought presented a great opportunity to talk about what that actually means, why it's important, as well as what progress has been made in this switchover. Now, it all boils down to solving a pressing problem, which is that the old set of rules we relied upon for the Internet just aren't quite sufficient to keep up with the way we're using the Internet. So first, we need to define what is IP. It stands for Internet Protocol, which sounds a little daunting, but really that just means it's the method or set of rules that the Internet follows in order to send data between computers or other devices that are interconnected within this network of networks. In protocol speak, we typically refer to these devices as hosts, and from a high level, the rules are pretty straightforward, but they are absolutely necessary. Without these rules, it would be pretty challenging to find what you're looking for when you connect to the Internet. So let's take a very simple connection, and that way we can build on that to understand what the challenges are. Back in the good old bulletin board system days, the BBS days, you would typically have one machine acting like a server. Everything would live on that machine, and it would serve data to a single client at a time. So that meant... You had one computer or host in the terminology of the Internet, and this one is the server that has all the message boards, files, games, whatever the bulletin board system might have. The people who want to visit the BBS would use a dial-up modem on their personal computer. This is another host in Internet parlance, but we also would call it a client And they would use that to call up the server computer over a normal phone line. So it's just like if you were to make a phone call to somebody else. The connection was direct, or at least as direct as a connection can be when it crosses over telecommunications infrastructure like phone lines. The point is, the client and server communicated directly with one another. The data didn't need to pass through any third-party hosts. A good analogy is the old two cans and a string method of communication. You know, you got a can on one side and a can on the other, a string connecting the two, and you speak, and the vibrations go through the string and are amplified on the other side, and Thus, you can talk. Well, the two computers in this example are those cans, and the phone infrastructure would be the string. But the Internet consists of millions of computers, plus routers and switches and other devices that are all interconnected in various ways. Whenever you visit a website or you send an email, you're sending and receiving data to and from other devices connected to that network. And some of them might be across the world from each other, which means there have to be rules in place for your messages to get to the right computers. And those computers have to know where to send the data back to you in response to your requests. Part of the Internet Protocol addresses this very issue. And yes, that is kind of a pun. It's called IP addresses. 
An IP address is a unique identifier for every computer or connected device on the internet. Uh, anything that's directly communicating with the internet has to have an IP address. And it's similar to a physical address that we would use for mailing things in that it provides a means for computers to locate the right destination for data. But unlike a physical address, a machine's IP address doesn't necessarily always stay the same. It can. It can be a static IP address. But it's pretty common to run into dynamic IP addresses, which means they can change depending upon the local network that it connects to, uh, the router that's in charge. Lots of different things can determine what a, a machine's IP address is at any given time. Now, the idea for IP addresses goes back much further than most people's experience with the Internet, unless you were a researcher or an engineer. The debut of the World Wide Web in the early 90s kind of helped usher in a new era of computer users, but the internet itself had been around for a decade before the web was a thing. Those rules had to be in place for the internet to work, and they were, in fact, an evolution of the rules that engineers were creating when they built the predecessor to the internet called ARPANET. ARPANET was a Department of Defense project. Those working on the project were creating the framework and rules within which different computers built on different architectures could meaningfully communicate across a network. This was a pretty hefty undertaking, but I've talked about it in other episodes of Tech Stuff, so I'm not going to go all the way through that again right here and right now. You can find the episodes on ARPANET and listen to those. But in a request for comments document, an RFC document, dating from 1980, the team working on Internet protocols detailed the necessity for addresses and helped clarify their role. Part of that meant explaining what an address is and is not. So here's a quote, a direct quote from RFC 760. And yes, uh, fasten your seatbelts because it's really exciting speech. A distinction is made between names, addresses, and routes. A name indicates what we seek. An address indicates where it is. A route indicates how to get there. The Internet Protocol deals primarily with addresses. It is the task of higher level, i.e. host-to-host or application protocols, to make the mapping from names to addresses. And so a device would need a name and an address. The route would be the pathway the data would take between the hosts. Now, this isn't all that different from sending snail mail in the real world. You can't just put an envelope in a mailbox with a person's name on it and expect the postal service to be able to deliver it. Unless, I guess, the name is Santa Claus. You need to include an address on the envelope. The postal service then takes the collected outgoing mail and determines how to deliver it which is not that different from how computers send data across the Internet. Now, one thing that is a little different is how devices on the Internet package data when they send it across the Internet. Devices on the Internet send data in small batches called packets. These packets are sort of like puzzle pieces. They don't all have to take the same pathway to get to their destination, where they are then reassembled into whatever it is that you were sending. It's a pretty ingenious design that helps avoid problems when a particular machine on the network goes down. But let's get back to addresses, because that's kind of a separate topic. In this request for comments, the group also mentioned that addresses were a fixed length of four octets, or 32 bits. Now, a bit is a single unit of information. It can take the form of a zero or a one. So the team would refine this a bit in future RFC documents, but 
for the time being, four octets or four uh, eight bits, five, four bytes, in other words. The 32 bits gave the team a lot of potential addresses to play with. So each bit can have one of two states, that being a zero or a one. And there are 32 of them total. So what you would do is you take two, the states, and raise it to the power of 32, the number of bits. That gives you a grand total of 4,294,967,296 addresses. Almost. Now, why do I say almost? Because not all of those addresses are actually available to the general world. The protocol reserves nearly 290 million addresses for specialized purposes, but still more than 4 billion addresses seemed like they were going to be plenty way back in 1980. Now, the way we typically see those addresses written out is in a series of decimal numbers separated by periods. For example, you might see an address like this, 216 dot. 27.61.137. Those are your four octets, except they're being represented as decimal numbers, not as bits. So you'll never see a number higher than 255 in any of those four spots. And why is that? Well, it's because the highest number eight bits can represent would be 256. So you start with zero you can go up to 255. If we started with just one and built up, we could go all the way up to 256, but we start with zero because we're talking about base 10. So once you hit nine, you need to be able to flip back over to zero. So 255 is the largest number that can occupy any of those four spots. If we wrote out that same IP address I just mentioned, the 216.27.61.137, it would look like this in binary code. And I apologize ahead of time because you're going to hear a lot of ones and zeros, guys. But this is why they decided to switch over to a decimal-based system for notation. The binary address would be 11010000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000
plugging into a giant web of data. These are hierarchies that we're looking at. So this is not, again, that different from an address on an envelope because on an address on an envelope, you'll have general information such as a country, a state, a city, that kind of thing. And then more specific information like a house number and a street, that sort of thing. So again, very similar to the way physical mail works. But even early on, well before the web, the team working on Internet Protocol realized that this was going to limit the useful number of addresses a bit too much. And so in 1981, they redefined the approach by creating five classes of networks. They they designated the classes from A to E. This became known as classful networking. Now, classes D and E contained the reserved addresses I talked about before. Some of them were for uh, uh, experimental purposes, and some of them were reserved for other reasons. Classes A through C used different bit lengths to designate specific networks. This removed the tight restriction on the number of networks that could join the Internet using IPv4, which up to that point had been a measly 256 networks. If the Internet only consisted of 256 networks, we never would have had to worry about adding this change. But clearly, that was not going to stay the same. Now, if you connect your computer directly to your internet service provider, also known as your ISP, your computer would get an IP address from that ISP. It would have you know, some sort of designation for this. But many people are using routers or are connecting to the network through another network that has its own router. And in these cases, the router has an IP address specific to it and typically creates a subnetwork for all the devices or nodes that connect through that router. So let's take our little example again. So let's say your computer's IP address is currently set to 216.27.61.137. And in this example, we'll say your network's identity is represented in the first three octets. So that means your network's identity is 216.27.61. The final octet designates the node on that network. In other words, your computer. So you could theoretically have any value from .0 as the final one to .255. Now I say theoretically because this is a class C network and as such may not have an ending in 0 or 255, but that gets a little too technical. The computers on the network use a set of rules called a subnet mask to separate the octets that indicate networks versus nodes. Uh, subnet masks in IPv4 follow a pattern. So the first such mask is 255.0.0.0. This mask reserves 8 bits to designate the networks. That 8 bits is in that first octet. The number that's represented in there is 255. Uh, and then it reserves the other 24 bits to designate nodes. So that would be a class A network. On the flip side, you have 255.255.255.0. That would mean you would have 24 bits, the first three octets, to designate the network and only eight bits to designate the various nodes. This would be a class C network. These are called masks because they guide routers to look at specific numbers within the addresses. And by looking only at the numbers that are pertinent to the network, the routers can save some time. They don't have to process an entire 32-bit address. They just look at the bit of the address that's important. Again, going back to the postal service, this would be like if you had uh, uh, two major piles, and one of them is for local mail and the other is for non-local mail. And you look at the address, and just by looking at the bottom line where you look at the the state you know, is it local or non-local? And so you just do a quick sorting that way. It's kind of similar to that. 
But why would we have all these different classes anyway? Well, it's all in how a network gets set up. So a network administrator would make these sort of determinations. Uh, if a network is going to have a lot of subnets, you need more bits to designate networks. If these subnets are going to have a lot of nodes, that is computers connected to those subnets, then you would need to dedicate more bits for the node or computer side of things. It's all dependent upon the infrastructure of the network. I'll explain a little bit more, but first, why don't we take a quick break to thank our sponsor. All right, on the internet itself, only the network part of an IP address is important. Uh, they, the internet machines don't care about your specific computer's address. They just need to know what network it needs to go to. Data will move toward that appropriate network, and once it's there, the host part of the address then becomes important. It's, it's kind of like once you get the mail to the right state, then you need to start dividing it up by city and thus uh, neighborhood and that kind of thing. IP addresses can be static, which means they don't change, or they can be dynamic, meaning they get assigned every time the device connects to the Internet. Most devices in the hands of consumers use dynamic IP addresses, and many are connected to subnetworks or subnets, which are networks that share a common network address. A single company might use subnets to share a single network address across all subnets, even if they are geographically distant from one another, and that helps conserve the number of network addresses that are generally available. Even so, it didn't take very long for the engineering team to realize that 32 bits was a big limiting factor, and so they set about to solve this problem. Otherwise, the world would reach a limit on the number of useful addresses, and no new networks would be able to join the Internet. It would have hit capacity. So with IPv4 addresses, again, we have a little bit more than 4 billion available ones once you take away the ones that have been reserved for other purposes. A billion is admittedly a very large number, but not nearly large enough. Even in the late 80s and early 90s, engineers were saying, yeah, this is going to be a problem. Things were changing quickly, and it soon became clear that we'd hit a real crunch with IP addresses. For one thing, there was an emerging trend of moving from an on-demand connection to the internet to pervasive connections. Now, by that I mean in the early days, you would typically use a dial-up modem to connect to the internet, and frequently this meant that you were engaging your home's one phone line so that you could call up an internet server and browse the internet. So you wouldn't stay on it forever because you'd need that phone line for other things. And you know, frankly, you could end up racking up big charges if you were on for a really long time. So you would typically hang up when you were done. Now, hanging up meant that you were you had just freed up an IP address. You didn't need that IP address anymore because you were no longer connected to the internet. So it, even if you had more people than you had IP addresses, not everyone was going to be connected at the same time, and so you could kind of fudge things a little bit. But then we gradually began to move toward more broadband connections using things besides just dial-up modems, and we also started to make a move toward always connected devices. Now, this is even more true today when you have everything from set-top boxes like video game consoles to wireless devices like smart thermostats and home security devices to add in. Then there's an added problem that any device that has multiple ways to connect to the Internet needs a different IP address for each of those methods. So, for example, if you have a smartphone that connects to an LTE network as well as to a Wi-Fi router, uh, it has to have an IP address for each of those. Or if you have a laptop that has both a wired and a wireless connection, it has to have an IP address for each of those. So a single device can take up more than one IP address. 
And of course, the other big challenge was that more of the world was going online. The internet, when it first got started, was kind of an exclusive club, a really nerdy exclusive club, but still exclusive. But now it was going global. So there were just a lot more people trying to connect and a new method of addressing was needed. In 1995, the Internet Engineering Task Force developed the successor to IPv4. This one was called IPv6. So that immediately raises a question. Why the heck did we jump from 4 to 6? Well, what would have been Internet Protocol 5 was an Internet stream protocol that was in development as far back as the late 70s. Ultimately, that protocol never rolled out for public use, and it also was never adopted uh, as IPv5 officially, but back then no one was really sure how things were going to turn out, and so they went with IPv6 to be safe. It expanded that bit number for addresses from 32 to 128, and they don't look like IPv4 addresses either. An IPv6 address consists of eight groups of four hexadecimal digits. The hexadecimal system is a base 16 system. So with a base 10 system, you start at zero, you go up to nine, and then you start over, right? 10 is just one zero, and then you could go up to 19, which is just one nine, and then you start over again. Now you go to 20, which is two zero, and over and over again. Now hexadecimal goes up to 16. But you really can't show that using just decimal numerals. It doesn't work that way. So with hexadecimal, you start at zero, you go up to nine, and then to fill in the additional digits, you use a sequence like A, B, C, D, E, and F. So in other words, in hexadecimal, it goes zero to F before repeating. Each hexadecimal digit in this sequence of 32 represents four bits, also known as a nibble. So while each decimal is an IPv4, uh, in an IPv4 address represents an octet, each digit in a hexadecimal address represents a nibble. And no, I'm not making any of that up. 4 times 32 is 128. So that's where you get the 128 bits. What this means is that the effective number of addresses skyrockets. If none of the addresses were reserved for special use, you would have 3.4 times 10 to the 38th power of addresses. So what is that in real numbers? I'd love to tell you, but the closest I can really get is uh, 340,282,366,920,938, followed by 24 zeros. It's more than enough for the foreseeable future, even with such developments as the Internet of Things. An IPv6 address might look something like this, and bear with me, because again, this is a long and somewhat confusing one. FE80 colon 0000 colon 0000 colon 0000 colon 0202 colon B3FF colon FE1E colon 8329. Each sequence of four digits has a colon separating it from its neighbor, so it's essentially the same sort of purpose as the dot in the IPv4 addresses. In addition, there are some nice tricks that you can use to abbreviate those long addresses. If you have a leading zero, in other words, you've just gotten past the colon or maybe you're even in the very first uh, uh, octet, um, then... you get Not octet, I'm sorry, you're in the first section. Any leading zeros you can drop. 
You can just go to the first number that is not a zero. Also, if you have a single range of zeros, you can drop those and replace it with a double colon. If you have several series of four zeros, you can drop all of those, if they're all consecutive, and replace them with a double colon. So you might remember that when I was reading off that very long IPv6 address, there were a few uh, segments that went 0, 0, 0, 0. Well, that means we could drop those and just put a double colon in there. So that last address I read a minute ago, if we abbreviated it, we could say it was FE80 double colon 202 colon B3FF colon FE1E colon 8329. Simple as pie. Or at least easier than what the previous one was. Now, I mentioned that the Engineering Task Force developed this strategy in 1995, but it wasn't until 2017 that IPv6 was officially adopted as a standard. And IPv4 and IPv6 are not fully compatible on their own. An IPv6 address can contain an embedded IPv4 address, but the IPv4 format is not forward compatible with IPv6 because... Well, that's the way time works. When you think of something first, you don't necessarily make it where it's automatically compatible with the next thing because you haven't thought of the next thing yet, sadly enough. It also takes a lot of time to switch an established infrastructure over into a new set of protocols. So that has what's one of the other reasons why it took so long to adopt it as a standard and to even make some progress on this. Add to that the fact that the Internet is not a single entity. It's not like there's one big building where the Internet is. It's not like the IT crowd where they put it on top of Big Ben. The Internet is a distributed network across lots of different machines. So rolling out a comprehensive change to the protocol is a colossal task, and it's a big, complicated mess. And there's no one entity in charge to say, hey, go out there and do this. Everyone agrees that we need to deploy IPv6 across all networks and adopt it moving forward, but actually doing it isn't that easy. According to the website worldipv6launch.org, the percentage of IPv6 adoption among the top 1,000 sites as measured by Alexa Internet, which is a subsidiary company owned by Amazon, uh, the number is just below 30%. So all the traffic going to the 1,000 Top websites, the 30% of those top websites support IPv6, which means that more than 70% of the most popular websites are not yet reachable via IPv6. And that is a bit of an issue. I will say that a lot of the ISPs, particularly the big ones in the United States, are pretty well prepared. They have done a fairly decent job at switching over their infrastructures to support IPv6, but we still have a long ways to go. Speaking of a long ways to go, let's take another quick break and then we'll conclude our discussion about IPv6. So every day, we're adding more devices, including routers, to the Internet. And we've established that even in the 1980s, engineers recognized that the number of addresses that IPv4 could handle was not up to snuff. How... In the blue blazes, have we managed to avoid a catastrophe for so many decades? So does that just mean the problem wasn't as bad as we thought it was? Because if we haven't switched completely over to IPv6 and we knew that IPv4 addresses were running out, why haven't we hit a massive crash? Well, the problem is evident. 
the four plus billion IP addresses are actually all gone now. That is, they've all been snagged by various companies and institutions like internet service providers or universities. Now, those entities can assign out dynamic IP addresses on their own respective networks, but no new network could pop up and request a spectrum of addresses from the uh, Internet Assigned Numbers Authority, or IANA. That's the authority that oversees this stuff. You couldn't request any new ones from IANA because there are no new ones left. What you might be able to do is negotiate with some other entity that actually has unused IP addresses and purchase them that way. But there aren't any new ones coming out because IPv4 is all dried up. Uh, below the IANA are five regional internet registries. Uh, they are called RIRs. These, as the name suggests, oversee IP address assignments over specific regions in the world. Those five entities in turn can assign banks of IP addresses to local internet registries, which can include stuff like the aforementioned ISPs and universities and other institutions. And also, just to clarify, while an ISP might be a local internet registry, not all ISPs fall into that category. Some ISPs belong to a larger entity, which in turn is the actual local internet registry. So this stuff gets pretty complicated. Back in January 2011, the Asia-Pacific Network Information Center, better known as APNIC, A-P-N-I-C, which is one of those five regional internet address registries I talked about, requested and received the last two unreserved blocks of IP addresses. There were only five reserved blocks remaining, and so the IANA ceremoniously granted one block to each of the regional internet address registries. And then all of those IP addresses were technically out in the wild. There were none left in reserve. By April 2011, APNIC ran out of freely allocated IPv4 addresses, which means that sometimes in that region you can't get an IPv4 address when you need one, meaning you can't connect to the Internet. So why hasn't that happened everywhere? Well, it's largely because engineers are very clever at figuring out workarounds or problems. There have been a few temporary measures that have extended the useful life of IPv4 despite the growing number of connected devices. So remember when I mentioned that IP addresses could be divided up by classes based on how many bits are dedicated to the network address versus the host address? Well, there's also something called classless interdomain routing, or CIDR, or CIDR. The Internet Engineering Task Force introduced CIDR in 1993 as a way to simplify how data move through routers on the Internet and to extend the useful life of IPv4. And it mostly has to do with the big drawback of the classful system. So the smallest allocation of addresses using the classful system is 256 addresses, which is a pretty small number when you remember how many devices need more than one IP address. So that's the most addresses that 8 bits can support. Uh, if you were in that class, if you moved up a class, suddenly the number of IP addresses you would get or uh, for uh, this particular class would go from 256 to 65,536. There's no in between there. You go 256 to 65,536. That's a huge number. That's more than what most organizations need for the devices that are connecting through their networks. So. There was no way to step between those two from a protocol standpoint. You either ended up with too few addresses where 
people were not going to be able to connect their machines properly to too many addresses where a whole bunch were just going to go unused and wasted. Uh, and that was a real issue. That's when CIDR was able to solve this problem. It was a new method to step around it. Rather than define networks and hosts by octets or bytes, you know, sequences of eight bits, it divides networks into variously sized subnets. So when setting up a network, engineers can aim for a range of addresses that best suits the organization's needs and not go beyond that. Now you have to go for consecutive addresses if you're using CIDR notation. Otherwise, you have to keep using the notation repeatedly. I think it's pretty messy. We use CIDR notation to represent IP addresses in this way. If you've ever seen what looks like an IP address followed by a slash and then a decimal number, you've likely seen an example of CIDR notation. The decimal number represents the number of leading one bits in the routing mask. Essentially, it's a shorthand notation to express the range of addresses represented in a network, and it's not limited to octets the way classful representation was. One big benefit of CIDR was that fewer IP addresses would go to waste unused. If you were setting up a large but not ginormous network, you could set up a range of IP addresses sufficient to meet your needs without going overboard by tens of thousands of excess addresses, which in turn meant that those unused addresses could be freed up for other networks, and it allowed for a better distribution of IP addresses, in other words. Another solution is Network Address Translation, or NAT, NAT. It's a set of rules that allows a single device to act as sort of a liaison between a specific network and the Internet. So remember, the Internet is a network of networks, so a device, like a router, could act as the gateway between your local network the one that just has a bunch of computers directly communicating with one another, and then everything else out there on the internet. So I'll use my office as an example. When I log in from How Stuff Works, all traffic between the internet and my computer passes through our company's NAT router first. The router has a range of IP addresses that ultimately come from IANA. You have to go up a couple of levels, several levels as it turns out, but IANA ultimately was the agency that granted this. My computer, on the other hand, has a non-unique and therefore non-routable address that works fine for communicating with other computers on my network, but wouldn't work if I could somehow bypass the router and try to communicate directly with the internet. So what do I mean by that? Well, within a network, you need unique addresses. Otherwise, data is not going to know where to go to get to the right destination. But network A could have a series of addresses, and network B could have the exact same series of addresses, and as long as A and B are completely self-contained, it doesn't matter, right? All the computers on B know what it means to go to this particular address, and all the computers on A know what it means to go to that exact same address because they only belong to their respective networks. When you connect through the internet, you then have to have another layer, something else to actually uniquely identify the machine. Otherwise, it would be as if the house I live in and the house you live in have exactly the same physical address but are in two different parts of town. That would be incredibly confusing, and we would constantly be receiving each other's mail. I think you have my socks. But my computer is behind the router from the perspective of the Internet. So my computer is not communicating directly with the rest of the Internet. It's communicating through the router. It sends data to the router, and then the router in turn routes that out to the Internet. So on my side of the router, on the company side, I don't have a need for a unique IP address. Whenever I try to communicate with a machine that is not on 
my private network, not on the HowStuffWorks network, that message passes through the router, which uses an available IP address that it has assigned to it, and then sends that message out into the world. The router then has to consult what is called an address translation table whenever data is coming back to determine which machine on our network is the intended recipient. So if I go out to, say, look at a web page, that message will go out to the router, which then will assign an available IP address to send that out to the internet. The response will come back. The router will look at the IP address on that, that, you know, the intended recipient, use a trend, a network a translation table to say, all right, well, who did I give this to again? Which, which computer has this temporary IP address? Oh, it's Jonathan's machine. He's the one going to red versus blue.com and watching cartoons. That's typical. And then it would get to me, probably without the actual commentary. Network address translation has a lot of other uses, but for the purposes of this episode, it really kind of sums up what it does via vis-a-vis the uh, IPv4 shortage. So this is a lot of, of uh, useful uh, treading of water, you might say. In fact, a lot of engineers said that the development of stuff like CIDR and NAT extended the useful life of IPv4 by about 20 years. That's pretty cool, but we still clearly have a need to move to IPv6, which is going to create so many addresses that it is very difficult to imagine a time when we will run out of them anytime soon. Uh, it may one day happen, but we're talking trillions upon trillions of addresses here. So the deployment is going pretty well. It's been a slow process when you consider that it was back in 1995 that they were first proposing IPv6, but it's largely because, at least in the commercial world, a lot of entities don't make a move until it's absolutely necessary. So once IANA uh, allocated all those remaining IPv4 addresses, that's when companies said, whoa, we might need to start working on this IPv6 thing. We might need to start rolling that out and making sure our websites are accessible, that our machines can communicate through IPv6, because otherwise we're going to run into some pretty tough situations. The migration requires software and firmware updates, sometimes hardware updates to stuff like routers across the internet. But many ISPs, particularly those big ones, like the ones that we have here in the United States, have largely addressed this. That No one's at 100% as far as I can tell, but uh, there are a lot of, of companies that have gotten to, you know, the 80s and 90 percentiles of deployment, which is pretty impressive. On the consumer side, smartphones pretty much are on the IPv6 train already, and all current versions of operating systems support the IPv6 protocol. So we're mostly waiting on web servers at this point, if I'm being honest. Now, back in 2013, Cloudflare CEO Matthew Prince projected that based on the adoption rate of IPv6 at that time, we could celebrate a full migration to IPv6 on May 10th of 2148. So mark your calendars. Also, I should point out, it's quite quite likely we're never going to see IPv4 abandoned entirely. It's more likely that we're going to see both sets of protocols continue side by side. It's just that IPv4 addresses will eventually be more or less completely locked down. But it's very rare to abandon completely a legacy infrastructure, and the IPv4 framework is a particularly large one. So we will continue to see this deployment. We'll see more development on the side of IPv6. And... uh 
maybe in a few years it'll we'll see that percentage for the top 1000 sites go up to above the 40% mark uh but it's going to take some time and honestly the the measures that have been put in place have created enough slack that a lot of people who obviously should be thinking hard about the future have kind of put it off a bit they procrastinated uh that's not great for all of us but the the bright side is we're not going to see the internet fail ipv6 will be more than a, uh, enough to solve this problem. It's just a question of when the various entities involved get motivated enough to switch over to IPv6. So I don't think that we're headed toward a catastrophe at this stage, uh, at least not collectively. There might be individual companies out there that find themselves scrambling once it gets to a certain point, but uh, maybe that'll just mean they'll learn a valuable lesson and then the board of directors will change the CEO and then the whole thing will start over again. That's cynical. We're not going to talk about that. Let's wrap this up. Hey, guys, if you have any suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, I have a solution for you. Send me an email. Address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Or you can drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle for both of those is techstuffhsw. You can watch me live on twitch.tv slash techstuff. Most Wednesdays and Fridays, I'm recording episodes. I'm glad to have you guys watch me as I stumble through this. I'm so glad that right now I don't have anyone watching me because cold medication makes me do weird things. Oh, and uh, make sure you follow our Instagram account. All right, that's it for this episode. Join us next time when we talk about something completely unrelated to Internet protocols. And I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 